Many of you know my friend Miles Valley. He uh, was here in this church many years ago, and he's a pastor of an alliance church in the east end of town. Uh, Miles and I have known each other for nearly 25 years, and we have a very warm and open uh, relationship. There's probably nothing about my life, especially my life with God, that he doesn't know about and vice versa. And because we're very different people, this has been a very profitable relationship for us. Early on this year, he came to me one day in one of our meetings and he said, Hey, I have a word from God for you. Now, when most people say things like that, I get nervous. <laughs> but not from Miles. Uh, I know Miles. Miles is a man who has a spiritual gift of discernment. His mind is saturated with God's word. And he's a man of prayer. And so, uh, in a great mood of anticipation and receptivity, I said, Oh, okay, I want to hear what he has to say. And then he referred to a telephone call that we'd had a little while ago. And uh, which brought to his mind a particular weakness of mine. Nothing new because we talked about that many times before. He said, but this is what God wants me to say to you. He says, he doesn't want you to grovel and condemn yourself. He said, I believe God is telling you to glory and celebrate your weakness. And give it to him instead. Because his strength is made perfect in your weakness. Well, I received that and immediately began to put that into practice in my prayer times in the ravine. And God confirmed it very quickly through some changes within my own spirit. But he really put the finishing touches on that two weeks ago at the eighth video of the Believing God series when Beth Moore talked about rolling away our reproaches. That's where we've come to this morning in our study of Hebrews. It's our final of Sunday of our ten-week emphasis in our church on learning to truly believe God. We've been working our way through Hebrews chapter 11. And the passage that we've come to today speaks specifically about that issue of believing God's word and what it says about invisible reality when visible reality happens to be the weaknesses in our lives. All of us have them. That thing that we call our Achilles heel. That point at which we are more vulnerable than others might be to the attacks of the enemy or even our own accusing voices. That thing about our lives that makes us feel that are two strikes against us before we even go up to bat. And so, I don't think there's anybody here for whom this message does not apply this morning. And by the time we're finished, I believe you will receive it with gladness as well. So let's begin reading. I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. And I catch the mood as, as he really accelerates. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weakness was turned into strength. Who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. <clears throat> and, and he goes on and talking about that. Now, the specific thing that I want to focus on today is those verses. I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, whose weakness was turned into strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. These four names that he uses that I want to focus on today as illustrations of people whose weakness was turned into strength all come from that period in Israel's history that is known as the Judges. After Joshua won the battle with Jericho, we looked at that last week. After the land was settled, they lived prosperously for many years, obeying God's commandment that he gave through Moses in his last sermon in the book of Deuteronomy. 
before Moses handed over leadership to Joshua. And we are told that so long as Joshua was alive and then all the elders who were alive with him, while they survived, the nation continued to live in obedience to God. But then it says there rose up another whole generation of people that did not know God. So in spite of that time of obedience and prosperity, they did not do a good job of transmitting the faith to the next generation. And that precipitated a 450 year period known as the Judges, which was characterized by an oft-repeated cycle. The characters changed, but the cycle was the same. It looked something like this. The people of Israel would break God's commandments, left, right and center. And as a result of that sin, God would send them a time of severe servitude, usually through the conquest of one of the remaining kings that was still left in the land, because not all of them had been defeated by Joshua and the army. And they would cruelly oppress Israel, bringing about several years of servitude. As a result of this, Israel would repent and eventually cry out to God and make supplication to Him and ask Him to have mercy on them. And God had mercy on them, and He would raise up a powerful deliverer known as the Judge. And that's why the book is called the Book of Judges. And He would give them a powerful military victory, salvation or deliverance from the enemies. And this would usher in a period of silence and calm and obedience. And then again, the sin would start. Seven such cycles throughout the 450 years, approximately that many. And a verse that happens throughout the book of Judges is every man did what was right in his own eyes. It was from such a period that God draws four more illustrations of faith. And right away you should be encouraged, folks. <laughs> These illustrations aren't coming from a time when the community of God's people was exuberant and thriving and overflowing in faith. It was the exact opposite. And yet from that phase, there were four individuals that God chooses to give us some illustrations of how weakness can be turned into strength. The first one is Gideon. At the time, the Midianites were oppressing the people of Israel. They would come and and raid them and destroy all of their harvests. And so Gideon was kind of hiding, threshing grain, hopefully in the middle of the night that he would not be seen. When the angel of the Lord comes to him and gives him a commission, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. Gideon's weakness was the weakness of insignificance. His clan was the weakest and he was the least of the weakest. You can't get much lower than that. Insignificance was Gideon's problem. But God commissioned him to go. And later when he managed to get 30,000 people, God cut that down to about 300 people. On the other side was Midian, whose tents were so numerous that the Bible said it looks like a swarm of locusts. So that was visible reality. His own weakness and a minuscule army compared to the massive strength of Midian. Invisible reality was God's commission to go Have I not sent you? Go in the strength that I have given to you. And Gideon wins a powerful victory. The next man is a man named Barak. He actually happens to come earlier chronologically in the book of Judges. At this time they were oppressed by a king named Jabin who had a commander named Sisera. And that army had 900 iron chariots. Doesn't sound like much to us today but they were all tiny little city states you might remember in those days. 900 iron chariots was a powerful weapon. Especially when we also read in the book of Judges at that time that there was no uh, shields and swords in Israel. They didn't have access to any of those weapons. So the visible reality was an incredible imbalance between the two. What was Barak's weakness? 
Well, the leader of Israel at that time was a woman named Deborah. She was a prophetess. So he heard, she heard messages from God. And so she heard a message from God to go to a man named Barak and challenge him to fight Sisera and Jabin. And Barak's response is, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now his problem, I don't think, was insignificance. It was just timidity. This was a man who lacked self-confidence. He said, if you go, I'll go. He needed somebody visible to represent strength before he could do anything for God. So that was a different kind of weakness. Well, Deborah said, okay, I'll go with you. But then as they moved into the battle, slowly you will begin to see how Barak's confidence began to build up as he began to go ahead. Notice these words in verse 9. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. It's interesting, eh? Deborah didn't go anymore. Now he was daring to believe that the Lord had gone ahead of him. He shifted his focus from visible reality to invisible reality in spite of his weakness. So like Gideon, in spite of his visible weakness and his visible imbalances of hardly any weapons with 900 iron chariots, he won a powerful victory. The third weakness is Samson's and frankly, I didn't know what this guy was doing in the hall of faith anyway. At this time, the Philistines were harassing Israel. But unlike one concentrated army, like in the time of Gideon or Barak, these were just raiding parties that would continually, periodically do invasive raids and capture people and go away and things like that. And so God raised up Samson. What was Samson's weakness? Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. We kind of assume that he must have had lots of conversations with her to know that. But verse 7 says, Then he went down and talked with the woman and he liked her. What is Samson's problem? I don't think it was insignificance and I don't think it was lack of confidence. He was just plain immature. He had a teenager's mind in an adult's body. He was an adolescent. He was immature. His immaturity shown by his approach to marriage. Instant gratification by what I see. Visible reality had a powerful hold upon this man. But as you read the story, you will find the Spirit of the Lord kept coming upon him. You will see his immaturity further in the fact that in every victory, his motivation, at least what we see in the text, is revenge. I want revenge. Let me revenge myself on these people. So you keep wondering, what in the world is this man doing in Hebrews 11? It kind of fades away when you put it, stack him up with Abraham and Moses uh, on the other side. There's two clues. Two clues. One time after one of these victories, he prays this way. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So even though this man was incredibly strong physically, it seemed that he knew that his victories were coming from God and not from himself. So to that extent, he had some faith, some rudimentary expression of faith, very much like Rahab's very minimal faith that we looked at last week. But his immaturity finally gives him away. He gets involved with another Philistine woman. He 
plays games with her in terms of where the source of his strength is. He finally reveals it's in his hair. She cuts off his hair. He loses all his strength. He's captured by the Philistines. His eyes are gouged out. He becomes a source of entertainment for the Philistines. And at the middle of a huge party one day, finally his hair has grown back and he cries out to God one more time. Still he says, let me have revenge. Still remains immature almost to the very end. But in his death, he kills more Philistines than in his life. So I kept asking myself, God, what is this man doing there? You know, it suddenly struck me. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Samson was the opposite of that. That is, with faith, even the least bit of faith, God is very pleased. I can't find any other reason to put this man there. Isn't that amazing? Without faith, it is impossible to please God, but faith counts so much with God. You know why? Because it honors Him that He's incredibly pleased and acts with even the most rudimentary expressions of faith. And as one person said last night in a brief sharing time afterwards, if He can get into the hall of faith, there's no reason why any one of us cannot. But I was just struck afresh. I was just struck afresh with how much this... I'd never thought of Hebrews 11.6 in the opposite. I'd always heard it without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now I'm beginning to think of that faith is with faith, it is impossible not to please God. You awake guys yet? Then Jephthah, one more guy. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said. Because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob. Where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. This time the Ammonites were attacking Israel. Claiming the land was theirs. Jephthah, his weakness, he was a mighty warrior. So he wasn't an insignificant guy like Gideon. He certainly didn't lack any self-confidence like Barak did. And as far as we, as far as we know, he wasn't uh, immature in the way Samson was. What was his problem? His weakness was his background. Dubious heritage. His mother was a prostitute. And all his half-brothers who were legitimate sons of his father kicked him out. And then it says he joined a group of adventurers. That sounds like a nice word until you understand that in the Hebrew, the word adventurers comes from the root word empty, which means they were good for nothing people. So that was his problem. Not a very great heritage, rejected by his siblings and influenced by good-for-nothing adventures. Now usually when you combine that with someone who's a mighty warrior, that's a recipe for disaster. When certain kinds of physical might is combined with poor backgrounds, you usually get destruction. (laughs) But God turned this man's weakness into strength. If you read the story, you will find that for all of this, where he got it from, I don't know. He had an incredible grasp of God's work in the history of his own people. For if you read the story in Judges, you will find that in his response to the Ammonite king, he doesn't flex his own muscles. He submits that king to a rehearsal of Israel's history with their God. And he says, this land has been given to us by our God. It doesn't belong to you. Then you cannot take it back because God has given it to us. There was that kind of faith. And through that faith, this man routed the armies of the Ammonites. So step back. Step back for a minute with you. Four men. Taken from a time in Israel's life when they were about as unflattering and unimpressive as a community as you could imagine. And each one of them with a weakness of their own. 
timidity, insignificance, immaturity, and a horrible background, and poor company. And yet in each of their cases, by faith in invisible reality, and the heart and core of that invisible reality was, God said to them, go, I have commissioned you. Have I not commissioned you? Am I not going before you? And each one chose to act on the basis of that invisible reality instead of the obvious weaknesses of their visible reality and saw God turning their weakness into strength. All of us here have some weakness like that. It may be the same one. Maybe some of you struggle with that same feeling of insignificance. Who am I? Look at my... Uh, I'm the least of this and the least of that. You're always comparing yourself with someone bigger, better than you and finding yourself looking small in your own eyes. Others of you, your issue is lack of confidence. I'll do it if somebody else goes with me. Don't ask me to do it alone. Don't ask me to step out from the crowd. Yet others, others of you, like Samson, struggle with immaturity. Visible reality has a tremendous gap. And, and relationships have always been a problem for you. And you tend to make more mistakes in that area than anywhere else. And yet others are like Jephthah. Cursed with a dysfunctional background. Maybe knowing rejection by your siblings. Influenced by unwise company. And there may be others that are not on this list. But for each one of us, the privilege and the choice is the same. To act on the basis of visible reality, invisible reality. What God has said to you. Because he's commissioned each one of us. Each one of us is a high and a holy call in his kingdom. And last night as I was praying and getting my heart ready for this message, I was really, really gripped with the conviction that there are many of you here who are, who are holding yourself back or allowing the enemy to hold you back because you are focused on this weakness. And you know what some of us learned last Sunday night? That merely groveling in our own weakness before God is not humility. It's idolatry. Because worship has to do with focus. And even if we are constantly thinking about our own weaknesses, the focus is ourselves. And that becomes idolatry. It is time that you said, no, I will not focus upon that. I will glory in my weakness instead. I will make it a means by which I will turn my attention back to God. The one who is able to transform weakness into strength as I act on the basis of what he says in his word. Today might be the day for you to make a decisive break with that kind of fixation on your weakness, whatever that weakness may be. Now, lest we think, lest we think that this kind of a life of faith that turns weakness into strength will always result in dramatic victories, we need to remember the other half of the text. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is the other side of the equation. Others were tortured and refused to be released, so they might gain a better resurrection. And Two verses in this passage are put in sharp juxtaposition. In verse 34 it says, By faith they escaped the edge of the sword. Verse 37 says, By faith they were put to death by the sword. Now how are you going to put those two things together? 
By faith they escaped the edge of the sword. By faith they were put to death by the sword. This is a much needed correction to all this doctrine of hyper faith. That if you really had faith, you wouldn't know suffering and difficulty in this world. The fact that those two verses come together in the same chapter on faith tell us this. Listen carefully. When you exercise faith in invisible reality, your weakness will always be turned into strength. Only sometimes it will be strength for glorious victories immediately. Other times it will be strength to bear up to the suffering and the trials that come. You know what that means? It means that whether you escape difficulties in this world or not when you live a life of faith has nothing to do with your faith. It has to do with the sovereign God. How often, how often we come to people and say, oh, if you only had more faith when they are suffering. That's not the issue. The critical issue is do you make the choice on the basis of invisible reality? Both of them did. Gideon, Samson, Jephthah and Barak made decisions on the basis of invisible reality. In spite of the visible reality of their weaknesses. Based on what God's word said. So did these people. Look what it says here. They were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. They looked ahead to the reward of invisible reality. Now in our, by the way, that's exactly the way it is with the persecuted church today. I read testimonies from them of amazing victories. People coming to Christ. Persecutors becoming followers of Christ. Great uh, stories of angelic protection and all that stuff. That's the first half of the Hebrews left. But you also hear stories of further persecutions of uh, family members being shot and raped and things like that and how God has given them strength to bear up to that. And so it is with you and with me or probably on a much less dramatic scale for the moment anyway. The critical issue, the critical issue is that you do what God tells you to do on the basis of invisible reality. Regardless of your weaknesses, regardless of what visible reality says. When you do, your strength will, your weakness will be transformed into strength. Sometimes it will be because you will see God come through amazingly. Other times he will give you the strength to continue to persevere when nothing seems to be happening. It's not up to your faith. That's up to God. Your faith is shown not by the result. Your faith is shown by your willingness to act on the basis of invisible reality, not visible reality. So when Miles came to me in that office that morning, this was the portion of scripture that we talked about. Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is what Miles was telling me to do. This is what I am passing on to you. Don't grovel before God because of your weaknesses. He knows that you know it. Acknowledge it. These people didn't deny it. Acknowledge it and then celebrate it and glorify it. This must be a turning point for some of you today. You know who you are. I don't know you. If you've been held back by these weaknesses, whatever they may be, you need to let them go today. You need to say, I'm not going to pretend I don't have them, but I am going to glory in those weaknesses because in Jesus, my weakness will be turned into strength. I will go ahead in whatever God's word tells me to go ahead. I want to conclude with this uh, passage, which is really not just a conclusion to tonight, today's passage, but all the stuff that we've been learning 
Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 because there are no chapter divisions in the original. The writer didn't suddenly finish his argument at chapter 11 verse 40. He continues, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne. The, the, the fundamental uh, exhortation here is to run the race with perseverance. All of us have a race to run. And it is in all these areas that we've learned from Hebrews 11. Remember, Abel taught us to worship by faith. Enoch taught us to walk by faith in the everyday routines of life, raising sons and daughters. Noah taught us faith when it comes to heeding God's warning of coming judgment and proclaiming that warning in one way or another to others. Abraham taught us many things. To live the life of adventure by faith. To be loosely enough anchored to this world. So that when God tells us to move, we can move. Abraham and Sarah taught us about learning to trust God for fruitfulness. In the midst of barrenness. And daring to invest in the spiritual harvest in the next generation. The patriarchs Isaac and Jacob and Joseph taught us. How to pass the baton to the next generation by faith as we carefully fashion words of blessing from scripture and and pronounce them and pass them on to the next generation. Moses then taught us by faith to identify with the people of God even when that identification means to turn our back upon treasures and pleasures. And last week from Rahab we learned by faith to let our destiny determine our identity as much as our past. And today Gideon, Samson, Jephthah and Barak have told us To walk by faith when it comes to our weaknesses. That's the race we are called to run with perseverance. To do all of these things and other areas where God speaks to us. To live the rest of our lives running this race of faith in invisible reality. And there are two great encouragements to that. First he says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean like in a Olympic stadium that we are running the race and all these witnesses are watching us. That's one kind of witness. That's not what's talked about here. No, no, no. These witnesses speak to us. Remember how it began? By faith, Abel, while dead, still speaks. These are speaking witnesses, not watching witnesses. They are people who come alongside us while we are running. And they are saying to us, look here, I did it. You can do it too. I had visible reality stacked against me. I know what visible reality looks like for you. But I want to tell you what happened when I put my faith in God's word. He did come through and he will come through for you. So don't quit. Keep running. And Gideon, Samson and Jephthah and Barak come along and say, I know what it's like to be weak. I was weak too. But in spite of my weakness, he turned my weakness into strength. And he'll do that for you as well. So don't quit. That's the kind of witnesses we're talking about. That's why I've encouraged you to memorize Hebrews 11. So you can rehearse this anytime you need to persevere. On any one thing. But. But. We're not asked to look at them. Only listen to them. We're asked to look elsewhere. Looking unto Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith. Because that's what all these witnesses are doing. They're saying look at him. Don't look at us. Look at him. The author and perfecter of faith. He was the author of this kind of faith. Because he became a man. That's what Christmas is all about. That's why incarnation is good news. The baby in the manger by himself could never have done the father's work. But he grew up to be a man and he lived this kind of a life of faith in invisible reality. 
That's why he said the son does nothing except what he sees the father do. The son speaks nothing except what he hears the father speak. Every day he got marching orders from his God. He lived his entire life on the basis of invisible reality as a man by faith. And of course that included the colossal act of embracing the cross. But notice his motivation. He endured the cross, scorning the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. It was a pure act of faith in invisible reality. The joy that was set before Jesus was the joy of being exalted back into the glory that he had before he came to this world. But even more than that, the joy of taking you and me together with him. The joy of bringing many sons into glory along with him. It was this faith in invisible reality that made Jesus go to the cross. And it is that faith that he authors in you and me. He births that faith within us and he perfects that faith as we continue to keep running. And so we are to keep looking. That let us fix in the original languages, let us keep on looking. And every one of us who's doing believing God know by now it's present, active, participle faith. You just continue to keep on looking at Jesus. And that's how you run this race. What, what a great way to finish this whole series. What a picture to bring this whole thing to an end. We have a race to run. We're running that race marked out for us. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the initiator and perfecter of faith. We have a great cloud of witnesses that are encouraging. And we'll keep persevering until one day we cross the finish line. And then faith will become sight. Then we will see him. And then we will say, it was worth it. The old Youth for Christ hymn that I learned when I first became a Christian in India, one line up at the end said, just one glimpse of him in glory will all the toils of earth repay. That's the race that we're running I'd like to invite those who are helping us with the communion to come to the front right now. Because we want to celebrate this Christ. We're looking to Him. This is represents an act of faith. These members of His body that were bruised and broken for us, this emblem of His blood that was shed for us, our text tells us today, that these represented Christ's faith in invisible reality. And in the partaking of it, we are doing exactly that. We are looking beyond the visible reality to that which is invisible. The visible reality is this little piece that you're going to hold in your hand, a cracker, a cup with a little bit of juice. How significant could that be? Really, what is this thing that we do? Every month. That's what it looks like to people who don't know Christ. But Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. This is food indeed. This is drink indeed. Are you prepared to believe that? That's invisible reality. And so please don't participate without faith. And I don't mean just those of you who do not yet know Christ as your Savior. Today is a great day to begin to do that if you want to. But if not, you can pass it by. But I'm talking about the rest of us who know Christ. Do we, just like our giving, just like our giving, do we do this as an act of faith in invisible reality that this is meat indeed, this is drink indeed? Let's pause for a few moments while we talk to God. So I pronounce my blessing on you. I want you to remember something. God came to Gideon and his first words were mighty warrior. That insignificant man was addressed as mighty warrior. God sees what we don't even see in ourselves. So I want to remind you of that first. Every one of you, God sees 
that potter sees what's in the clay already. So here's my blessing for you. This week, may you hear God clearly speak to you about a specific step of action he wants you to take in the face of your weakness. May you dare to walk in that because you believe a God who will turn weakness into strength. And then you will make sure that we all hear about it so we can give him the glory. Go in Jesus' name.